So I'm just uh, sitting here, and hey, uh, David just walked in. Yeah, I just happened to kind of be in the neighborhood. I knocked on the door after I found which apartment was yours, finally. I've been out here for an hour, actually, and checking everyone's door. They um, all look the same. Do you yeah. know that? Uh, apartment racist. But I, I was just <laughs> looking out the window, and I saw David's face there, and it was, like, slowly gravitating toward the windowsill. I was like, he looks sad. I should let him in. Yeah, it's it, I've been out here for a little while. It was raining, too, so it was very cold. Thank you for letting me in, <laughs> Calvin. So I figured, uh, just as general repayment, I could at least sit down and do a podcast again with you. I'm sort of technically in home. This is, you know, I'm coming up from Portland here to Seattle now, and Seattle is very much where I kind of lived and grew up and around, and, uh, you know, Portland's only been the last couple of years where I've really grown to, to be part of it, but Seattle I very much recognize and can kind of get around. And you were out here this week to go see your dad. What do you guys get up to? Yeah, uh, I came up, uh, tried to get in one last day of fishing with him uh, back up in the, the sound area there. We went over actually to uh, uh, Cranberry Lake is where we were at. Okay. I always think fishing is just like the process. It doesn't matter. Uh, you showed me your catch. It was, yeah, it was uh, a it was, whopper. It was not a good day of fishing. It was a little tiny, like, six-inch bass, probably, <laughs> that we, we got out of the lake. That was the one bite we got that day, and, uh, you know, I was fine with it. My dad was a little disappointed leaving, but I was fine because I just really wanted to be out there on the boat again because I just loved being out there, and the weather was just barely, like, acceptable enough. It was really overcast the whole day. The wind picked up a couple times, but it was never terrible. It's just, like, there was, there was no bites in the lake. Yeah, I think that's the whole process for me is it's just, like, getting out on the boat and enjoying the water. And mm-hmm. I guess uh, my week's been pretty uneventful. I've been down with this uh, slightly broken foot. I, I I went in crutches and went to the horror museum at the e- old EMP. That's that's the only thing I'm going to accept calling it. So I know I <laughs> I just I thought we could like avoid the interjection, but I think this is getting awkward. You had to do it anyway. Yeah, it's uh, you know they want to call it something else now, but it's always been the EMP. The EMP is the special name and the thing we carry for that horror exhibit's been around for a long time too. yeah i think it's on its third fourth year um uh, it was it was interesting to go and write a write an article on a four year four-year-old exhibit uh, we had the freshest content <laughs> i think it's still it's an interesting perspective you gave to it i really enjoyed reading it and hopefully we'll have it on the site here if not this week i think i think we kind of want to reserve it for right before halloween or yeah, october yeah. starts we could really push it into the halloween season and kind of intro with that i think it's gonna make a good transition it's like a whole uh, piece about our relation to props and uh, what we do when we see a prop and what it means to us in person yeah. and what it means in the movie differently. But yeah, it's, it's unfortunate about your foot. I know you've been having trouble getting the surgery to help deal with it. And actually, uh, we originally planned on uh, talking about rear window this week, but I figured it would be a little <laughs> insensitive. Yeah, a rear window would be a little bit difficult. That was <laughs> that was just my, my morning waking up and seeing you outside the window and sitting there with my binoculars and my foot. <laughs> propped up on the table oh man so this week on the twin geek cast we're looking at uh what are we doing what what movie are we looking at again blue velvet what's blue velvet it's your oh oh common doesn't know okay so uh there's this filmmaker um david lynch he's been doing these weird kind of dreamy esoteric films for, for kind of his whole career he's made his his whole career around it he's kind of a a gruff guy with a weird kind of voice and affectation there. There's a lot of, there's like a cult of people who really like him, but I don't know, you know, sometimes people think he's just really fucking weird. Yeah, he talks kind of like this. He has (laughs) very specific interests working outside the Hollywood system. 
This is your dream podcast, yeah, man. I it is. This... this is probably the closest we've come to a director I actually like. <laughs> um, is that right? Uh, I mean... We did Sergio Leone. So. We did Leone. We did... I mean, I, I think you like other directors. You you like Hitchcock and Kurosawa. Okay. And, yeah, they're all right. But, like, you, you've got a much bigger devotion to Lynch. Like, you actually subscribe to, to him, I believe. Yeah, I'm in the Church of Lynch, whatever it is. The satanic place of worship. Yeah, I don't know. Like, did it start with Twin Peaks? I, I gotta wonder. For me? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it did. I think it's very area-specific for me. And There's, I, I think, think a we'll, lot of your interests tend to, to stem. Like, if it takes place up here in the Northwest, you're immediately on board. Yeah, I think that's a good starting place for me. Like, I'll, I'll look at it at least. I think we'll get into that later, why I think this is actually a very Northwest film. Which, uh, is, which is interesting, because it's not as yeah. opposed to like twin geek or twin peaks shit yeah as <laughs> oh, to exposed, twin geeks. <laughs> i've exposed us our name and for the longest time there was just this darkness and all of a sudden thousands of robins were set free and they flew down and brought this blinding light of love and it seemed like that love would be the only thing that would make any difference. Hi, this is Calvin. And David here. This week on the Twin Geekcast, we're looking at Monos, Goldfinch, Hustlers, and we'll be looking at JoJo's and new events in festival circuits. For our featured film, we'll be looking at the 1986 neo-noir mystery thriller from David Lynch, Blue Velvet, starring Isabella Rosalini, Kyle McLaughlin, Dennis Hopper, and Laura Dern. You really give me the confidence to talk about Jojo and Nazis. Yes, Nazis and Jojo Rabbit here, uh, which uh, last week, uh, I believe, we talked about briefly in that it was doing poorly from the critics, but uh, things have since turned around with the audience score. I believe it was the, the choice of the festival that week for yeah. the audience. Yeah. It won the Toronto International Film Festival Audience Award this last week, which historically we know last year it went to a, um, what do you call it, Green Book. So, Did it go to Green Book? Yeah, it won Green Book, and that was the first buzz of Green Book's uh, award circuit. So, uh, We also know that, critically, uh, pan movies don't often get to the Oscars, but then we had Bo Rap last year, which kind of made it as far as you could really go without winning the award. Right. I'm wondering how much, you know, the, the studio or, or, I guess, Academy politics involved in everything kind of a big factor. And yeah. I'm... I'm sure there was a lot of push for that with Bo Rap as well, but I and I've got a feeling, especially since Disney now kind of has reins over Jojo Rabbit, that that's not going to be the case. <laughs> yeah, you know what I feel is that Disney's going to drop this right after release. They don't want this to be their awards film. Uh, I, I wonder if it's even going to get a significant release just yeah. because. I know I know Disney kind of had problems in the the final editing of the film here once they kind of finally got their hands involved and. They didn't really know what to do and wanted to cut back on things on the, you know, uh, secret friend Hitler movie. Yeah, right. So. <laughs> I mean, sensible, I think, that uh, if it's not connecting and the satire doesn't work, of course you could make a, hat, a satire about Hitler. We had, like, a. What was the movie where he became a big YouTube star in, like, the alternate reality? I think it was called Guess Who's Back look, or yeah. Who's Back or. Don't look now or look now. Look Who's Back? Look. Look Who's Back. Is that what it's called? It's something like I that. I read the book. Yes, yes, yeah. you're correct. That's what it's called. I read the book and he becomes a famous YouTube influencer, which is strange for Hitler to be YouTube. Uh, I don't know if it's strange. I mean, he kind of is already, you yeah. know, especially with all of the rise and, uh,. <laughs> 
<coughs> white supremacy as of late and uh, general Nazi idolatry. In in the news, we had a PewDiePie who was just he he pledged oh, yeah. to give a ton of money to the Jewish, uh, um, what is it like the Jewish Foundation against like defamation like, oh. or something? What what I remember standing as everyone was hooking on the the, the cross on his uh. The iron, yeah, yeah, the yeah. iron cross on his collar while he gave a speech saying why he's rescinding his uh, donation to the Anti-Defamation League for the Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's problematic. We live, we still live in the same times. It's just, uh, damn. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just interesting that uh, it's all kind of coming back into uh, vogue, I guess. I don't know if I want to phrase it that way, like it's a, a fashionable thing to be a Nazi, but... Vogue, is that a German word? You know, I don't know its origins, uh, like, etymology-wise, but uh. no, no, I'm going to go with no, it's not German. It doesn't sound difficult enough to pronounce, so I'm going to say it's not German. Oh. Um, what else happened this week? We had the we had the roast of Alec Baldwin. Did you get to that? No, I did not watch that, because uh, I, I don't even use <laughs> Cause the it's a roast. anymore. <laughs> oh, not only the roast, that, yeah. that was not something I even cared about eight years ago, but... <laughs> It's great because he gets up and the opening scene is him giving uh, Robert De Niro's Raging Bull poem, like the scene in the mirror. And, oh, like the, at the end of Raging Bull, the, uh-huh. I'm the boss, I'm the boss. <laughs> uh-huh. And then, uh, then Robert De Niro's there. He gives a he gives a performance, which is fun. I heard he was like the the best part. I yeah. think, is that he was he was very funny, which is like the opposite of what I've heard of De Niro in his comedy <laughs> films. Yeah, it was it was very strange seeing him. But every time they were like. Uh, Making you know the black jokes about his wife, De Niro was just uh, losing it and doubling over it. It was just fun to see a lot of a lot of commentary about it being like the end of his life, which was depressing. But it is. I mean, it's it's an interesting person to pick because Baldwin's not like a super comedy presence. Like he's yeah. not the kind of person I was like, oh, they're roasting Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, Alec Baldwin's had a weird kind of interesting history as a celebrity. He was kind of like a Hollywood leading man for a little while, but then he was better in like supporting roles, and then he kind of had a big boom on television with like Thirty Rock and stuff, and being on SNL lately was like the last really big relevant thing. I mean, my favorite one still the Norm Macdonald bit from the uh, Bob Saget roast. Have no, you seen that one? No, I, I think I watched one roast in high school, and then I didn't even care to remember what it was. What was the Norm Macdonald bit? Well, he was just telling a lot of, like, anti-comedy. He's like, uh, you know, punctuated anti-comedy that doesn't really leave a mark. And then you're left for, like, eight minutes watching this guy bombing on stage horribly. Uh, it's very satisfying for me. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, we have a few new films in box office. Yeah, I think those are worth talking about. I think you're excited to talk about this first one here, even though it's, it's a very minimal release, but you can finally get to talk about it. Yeah, Monos was in the Seattle International Film Festival, and I've been embargoed for about four months. Uh, really fantastic Mika Levy score. Uh, you'll know her from Under the Skin and Jackie, which are, I think, two of the best soundtracks I've ever heard. For Jackie as well? Yeah, Jackie's really incredible. Uh, she also, did she do anything else of note as of late, or is it just, yeah, oh, Under the Skin was her first? Wow, that's surprising, yeah. <laughs> actually. <laughs> well, she was already classically trained as, like, a violinist and, you know, Mm-hmm. where she's from and then she's got like that european violinist background and so it was pretty obvious that she was coming from it in like an academic way and then she's looking at like what sounds of like strip clubs sound like for under the skin so she based that on that but mono she said she was just like blowing into a bottle 
and she got like this ethereal sound that made it sound like spacious and like like she was vacuous stuck in the mountains so it's about these Colombian kids who go into the mountain to look after this like sacrificial uh, cow it's like the only cow that's up there in the mountains in Colombia so uh, they need it for the milk and they basically keep it alive on it and the cow dies really early on so I think that's my main problem with the film is that uh the cow dies, and that was, like, the whole plot, and then the kids are just wandering, like, Lord of the Flies. Mm-hmm, so it, like, loses a lot of its purpose after the the cow ends up going into the main thrust, I think. It sounds like it just kind of dissipates a bit. Yeah, I think the cow is what keeps the kids together in some sense. I think you get the climax so early that it's, like, a, then you're just struggling with the kids and what's their relationship anymore, because their whole mission is to watch the cow, right? So... Then what happens when kids are stuck in the environment together without any mission, and they're all like militarized, trained, and <laughs> they're all killers? Um, it's a it's a dark movie. It's a very long, slow movie too. How long? Let's see here. It's a. It feels like oh, five it's hours. Not, it's not. It's, it's, it's not. only an hour and forty minutes. It feels like it's about five hours by then. Wow. Yeah, the mountain and just uh, everything about it. I'm I'm pretty like mid on, and then I get to the soundtrack. I'm like, holy shit. I think it's the best sounding thing, and you know, since uh, you were never really here. Yeah, uh, nothing else you think compares to it really that much this year. Um, I don't think there's anything that sounds half as good as this this year. Um, oh. I just think that the invention to and how it sounds like the mountains of Colombia, like it would be hard to really describe under the skin without using a lot of words, right? Like uh, what that sounds like. Um, right. Like it's, it's ethereal. It's passionate. It's hot. It sounds like sex or the the strip club but it's also kind of it's got those disturbing qualities to it and those more uh, alien sequences mm-hmm. you know it's it's very uh it, it drives for the film like you think of something like a uh, you know psycho or uh uh <clears throat> something similar to that. i don't know i think of like uh, aliens uh kind of uh aesthetic as well with its uh not score but sound you know the soundtrack in there the way they use sound to create the environment Mm-hmm. And if you are in one of five places in the world, then I guess you should see this this week. If you're not, then I guess you can't. Yeah, I guess not until <laughs> next week if they expand or drop. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see, but try to see it this year because it sounds incredible. And if you are in a theater, it sounds amazing. Um, after that, we have Goldfinch, a book that I hated and a movie that sounds bad. Yeah, uh, I don't know very much, so maybe you can uh, rip it apart here for me, but it's it, it bombed, it looks like, here. made, what, two million, I think, on its first weekend? <laughs> Is that right? That's, That's what it looked like uh, when I pulled up, so yeah, miserable. up the box office again. Yeah, 2679000 on a budget wow. of $45 million, so. Imagine that on such a great best-selling book. I mean, not great like in quality, but in number and mass. That book dominated bookstores for about five years. So. I remember seeing it a lot in bookstores, yeah. but I didn't read then, so... It's such a long book. I got about, you know, halfway through, which is like 300 pages, and it's just uh, just drags and drags, so I couldn't even describe very well what goes on in the book or what goes on in the film. There's so many things that happen, and there's so many characters that don't matter all the time. Looks like they didn't fix that dragging problem I'm looking at some of the specs of the movie here is about two and a half hours yeah. for this and it looks like i don't know what the material is but just based kind of like on the poster and who's involved i'm like i'm kind of expecting a, a teenish kind of drama romance thing hmm. you, know, you got ansel elgord in the leading role and well that sounds fine is that was that anything what the material is like um that sounds about right a little bit older audience i'd say a little bit more war story and 
Uh, I think we have better news, though, for uh, the Hustle. The Hustlers. Hus- hustlers, Hustle. Uh, we're getting these mixed up. We spent like a good 10-15 minutes before the show here trying to differentiate this from the... Let's, well, let's let's just play it again. So we... <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's in there. Just, just yeah. redo, play it up. <laughs> so there... Is that like a Mr. Caffeine thing? Like the... The what? Like the going back in time and the... Oh, no. Are we doing the Wayne's World thing? Oh, the Wayne's World, I see, yeah. Yeah, that's... Hustlers, it's the... The Hustlers. Jennifer Lopez thing. That's that's all I know. Um, The Hustle was the Rebel Wilson movie that came out the last month, so... Wasn't that with Anne Hathaway? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Anne Anne Hathaway, and... The Hustlers looks like it's a Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez movie that's going to win some awards. Uh, and then, and then the Hustler is a Paul Newman movie from the sixties. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, this one's a little different. It looks like a girl buddy movie, which we don't have a lot of in the oh. sense that they're like taking on like the scores guys that are um, that are you know going for strippers, and it's kind of like taking back against the one percent. You know, band together, turn the tables on their Wall Street clients. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, so yeah, it's like a like like flip fantasy revenge thing from strip club workers to I think Wall the most Street fun guys. thing about listening to our podcast is that we find out like on air what's what movies I certainly are. do. You I do. don't I don't pay attention to anything news wise outside of this. I prefer to just get it all here and sound like an idiot on the air. This is how David learns about movies. Podcast, <laughs> the new movies. Yeah. <laughs> um so Jennifer Lopez is up for the uh, best supporting role. I'm a little bit upset because I thought Widows should have won something or even is been she nominated. For? I don't think they're nominated yet. But oh, I think she's in. Um, you're, you're you're guessing off the bat here that she's like a shoe in for it. Just because it's best supporting and not best main actor, and I don't have any other ideas for best supporting. I mean, the girl from Booksmart, but nobody saw that, so yeah. I don't know. I don't know what else. I don't, There's no. I have nothing. Like just talking about Oscar contenders in general, I'm like, what. Is what is there? there? I don't know. Uh, I mean, and, and part of it surely is because I don't watch or learn about new movies, but also just uh, it doesn't seem like there's a little like any buzz from anyone in particular. I think all the good stuff is still waiting to come out. Yeah, I think I think this year more than any other that we've ever had is back heavy. Uh, I feel like everything's in the back end on this year. Do you, Do you still feel pretty good about this year? I know, like no. versus last year, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not. Last year, there was some really great stuff, and we were all disappointed because the Academy just, like, flat-out ignored 80% of it. I think it was pretty easy to feel good coming off of SIF, and then after that, I had to deal with the reality of the summer, which was, like, no new festival for me. Uh, Just some indie stuff that was pretty cool. Uh, Nothing big budget that ever worked out, really, except uh, Tarantino's thing. So uh, there were two good horror films this summer. I mean, it's really, really dry. Yeah, I guess like Tarantino's uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like really the the only major like like notable or feel like oh this is a a real movie in ways like not yeah. not to kind of degrade other ones but it feels definitely like there's more of a heart and passion put behind it and less like uh, I'll, yeah I'll say less studio interference because I'm pretty sure there was no studio interference because yeah, like because it's Tarantino yeah like Sony wasn't gonna march down there and say um. Now, I want to talk to you about the violent ending here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they're not going to say it. They know what they're getting from Tarantino, and they gave him Final Cut, which is so rare, and they gave him rights over it. So. Well, I think Tarantino's one of the few people who could really command that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll know. talk about that in a little bit with Blue Velvet, but it's so rare that anyone could get it. Yeah. Uh, so that's, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is really, like, the, the most, like, 
individual feeling movie and something that deserves of recognition of any kind this year. You know, even stuff that yeah, I'm trying I've, to think. Uh, otherwise, the only problem is once this comes out, it comes out the day after Ad Astra, so we have another <laughs> we have another Brad Pitt movie that might well, that's kind demand of more attention. I've actually seen more than just you. You know, people talking about what if brand gets both best supporting and best yeah. leading this is a theory i've been trying to push for i think i think hollywood has potential for like acting and directing and maybe even writing nominations I think. yeah i don't think it's gonna win like leo another oscar it's not that kind no. of role i don't think but, leo but could Lee's win performance in, uh, or not leave uh, brad pitt's performance in it could certainly net something what about uh if there was a award for most feet now, yeah, Tarantino would win every year, even the years he wasn't nominated. By the way, I watched uh, Cinderella with my daughter. That has a lot more feet than a Tarantino yes. movie. I, I read your letterbox review when you said that, and it made me laugh. I well, because she's coming down the stairs, and it's like the biggest shoe fetish movie. Like, she drops her shoe, and then... It's all know, about the shoe, yeah. Yeah, the guy grabs it, and he looks at her foot, and then he like you know kisses the shoe and gives it back to her. His face turns red. I'm like, this is a Tarantino movie. Someone should upload that clip to, like, Pornhub or something. I, th- I think it's already there. I bet it is, especially with all the other cartoon porn. Right? All right, all right. Oh Kelly, your, your dog is pushing his paws on the genitals hey. now. Just so everyone knows. Yager. I don't remember what we left out on. I just remember um, I think we're good. the dog assaulting me <laughs> in my most treasured places. Yeah. Asia, we don't need any color commentary from the peanut gallery. You're not a member of this. You're only a part of this project in reference in cute anecdotes from my own personal life. You can't be real. It David. can't exist. David's fiance exists. No, no, it's a figment of my imagination here for this podcast. Oh. It's not real. Uh, Ad Astra. We were talking about Ad Astra. Yeah, I think we just wrapped Ad Astra, and uh, I, I feel fine moving on to Blue Velvet. I just want to talk about Lynch. I know you do. All right, so... At the behest of Calvin's impatience to talk about his favorite filmmaker. <laughs> Finally, but, but, a film I really want to talk about. Yes, this whole podcast has really been building up to this moment. Everything else before now has just been for my entertainment. I'm finally conceding to Calvin's interest to talk about Blue Velvet. The first of, I'm sure, many Lynch films we intend to cover on this Lynch-inspired Website? Podcast, <laughs> website. Uh, so... I think like the most interesting origin for me is thinking about how when I read through I have the David Lynch biography right here, Room to Dream, that you could look at it. I was just uh, thinking about it. Thanks for uh, tapping it for the, for the radio show. <laughs> I want I want them to know it is. It, in it, fact it does here. exist. It's not like a Kindle, so you could hear the paper there. It's really a book. Um, I. I realized that uh, David Lynch's best memory of his life was going to Goodwill and finding a blue velvet couch. That was his biggest inspiration. It's interesting. I'm imagining like the actual blue velvet, like the the dre- the the robe from the movie on yeah. his couch. I'm like, that seems gaudy as hell. <laughs> it is, and uh, there's something to it. I think that he was in like Philadelphia and he had like boarded up windows and just like a he lived in like painter studios and still does, I'd imagine. Um, and we'll get into some of his living situation stories in this, but uh, uh, I just think it's interesting that it would come from something so so minor, and that he he has such a whimsical mind about like the subconscious and what inspires him. 
That always interests me about Lynch. Mm-hmm. That, that does seem like exactly the kind of thing that would inspire an entire movie from <laughs> David Lynch is just this one weird couch that he found in a thrift store. That's that's yeah. exactly the kind of thing where I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense knowing the kind of person David Lynch is. He's totally weird, but that's because he's just he thinks in a very different way from everyone else and it's very clear from his work in seeing it and i think that's what makes him such a kind of visionary artist he says that he had this idea that of an ear that was detached from a head and you'd go inside the ear and it would like enter the world like who thinks like this when they're pitching a movie idea that uh he also had the four actors lined up already in his head that would be in this uh, he really already had the vision he had I think we'll get into this later, but he had the first half of the movie all mapped out, and that's the only part that he let his producer read. So uh, mm. that's why there's like a, a bit of a tonal difference. And I had read at one point there were other actors considered for some yeah. of the four parts, but right. I can't imagine anyone else than who's really present, especially because of um, you know where they come from, especially some of these. But I, I want to wait to get to them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I think a lot of the inspiration comes from his upbringing. Like, uh, when he lived in Spokane as a kid, he realized that, like, it was, like, the perfect American ideal of what, like, a little town would be, but it also had, like, a seedy weirdness to the, like, Americanized version of it. So, like, I think his upbringing in Spokane, and then, uh, then we have, uh, I guess I should get into it now, we have McLaughlin? How do you say his name? I think McLaughlin. I'm always slipping on it. I think it's that. It looks very, uh... He's also from Yakima originally, so is we he? yeah we have a lot of like Northwest background, and That's I have, I just think I think it exudes like the feeling and the atmosphere of like a Northwest cafe. It 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 does have lots of feelings, not in the same way that something more literal like Twin Peaks seems yeah. to, because uh, you know Blue Velvet definitely has more of a Midland kind of feel. I think uh, you know it's the the. But the environment the town is in has a very thick aesthetic. They they set up this kind of logging nature of the place in. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the town. It's something it's, cheeky. It's like log something. It's it's basically implying that it is a logging yeah, town. It's just this is just log, and you see that everywhere. They have like a, a you know a, an axe guy hanging out with one of the icons of the town. There's literal logging trucks. They focus on logging trucks as they drive through the town. So it's got that very thick uh, aesthetic to it. And it's a um, uh, Lumberton. Lumberton. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah, and it's like yes, this is. Literally the only thing this town is, yeah. which makes sense. That and then obviously it breeds the curiosity of uh, Kyle McLaughlin's uh, character to uh, go on this very bizarre and you know interesting kind of teenage investigation because that that is the the youth of the characters I think is a very prominent element of it. Yeah, and that's the other thing he knew about the movie before he produced anything is that uh, he wanted a mystery where these kids were figuring out something. It's really interesting to me because it's McLaughlin and Dern, and then like three years later in like season two of Twin Peaks, they're they're investigating together in the same way, and uh, and it plays out in a I think I think a much stronger way. But uh, I I really love what's going on here, and I love the dark mystery. Um, what was the film earlier this year that was a uh, the guy from It Follows made it the Under the Silver Lake. Yeah, I feel yeah. like I feel like that's trying to be this movie in so many ways. I I can sense that again because of the bizarre mystery element to it. But I think what really uh, Blue Velvet shows that that I can kind of speak more to from from my own experience is that there's a clear filmic influence as well from Lynch, and that Blue Velvet is very much uh, rooted in neo noir mystery elements. I mean, you got you got Ingrid Bergman's daughter in here, which tells you a lot of his influence. Yeah, and that's a huge aspect. That, and her character here, Isabella Rosalini's, you know, kind of European 
characteristic to her. She has the same merits that, you know, an Ingrid Bergman type totally does, and it yeah. brings to those uh, kind of sensibilities of noir and the mystery <laughs> aspect of it. And it does feel like, especially in early on in the film, it feels much more like the kind of classic detective mystery story than it does by the end. But it starts out very much that way, and placing it in that kind of useful sense, it reminds you of something kind of even more modern, like uh, Brick. I think Brick is a good yeah. example, which I, and I end up actually liking this much more than Brick. Brick is trying to go down the same path here. Right. Um, the, again, the youthful aspect of it, the, uh, there, there is that youth aspect, because the whole big theme of the film is a huge loss of innocence aspect. Mm -hmm. This kind of maturing of uh, the main characters here as they uncover something very dark and adult that they probably weren't ready for and you know people generally ask you just think it's, it's that point in your life where you're never ready for that kind of realization of how uh terrible and terrifying things in the world are but that's when it comes and it changes you forever it's like a coming of age like mcgoggle comes back to his hometown and he's come from college and now he has to become a man and deal with like the actual darkness of being an adult in the same town he was a child and and yeah, like the vision of darkness. It's overemphasized here. Um, what do you think about uh, what do you think about the casting? Uh, McGoughlin come from Dune, of course, would be a shoe in for Lynch. Mm -hmm. Was Dune prior to this? Yeah, yeah. Dune was right before this. He was real tired of the uh, studio system, but his producer uh, Laura Laura Lannis, yeah, who was like an Italian film guy, he produced a lot of like the high end Italian cinema. He gave him one more chance and read half the script. He's like, you got to make this movie now. I think that's interesting because I always have thought about Blue Velvet as kind of prior to Dune for some reason, especially because of McLaughlin as well being in this. I figured like that just seemed to me like a more natural, um, you know, first partnering, I thought. Right. As opposed to like, like Dune, which is a big studio thing. Yeah. And I figured Lynch would have pulled strings to get one of his favorite actors in the leading role but <laughs> yeah i guess that's not the case uh and it also just makes sense coming off i think the backs of his earlier career stuff um but no no i see this better as a much kind of uh, better return to uh familiarity for lynch after something like dune was yeah at this point so at this point he had only made a racer head in dune right so no he made elephant man and in elephant 80, man yeah. which is the most like uh commercial lynch picture possible like it's yeah. like there are hints of dreamy surrealness to it in the beginning and end but mm -hmm. otherwise it's very straightforward very bio fantastic. picture yeah. it's a fantastic picture still but it's very notably unlynch like for the most part um i think what i think what is so funny about it is he was just at that point just he was going to bob's big boy every day which is like a like a burger big and chef restaurant train. most people yeah. probably recognize it from a spaceship that Dr. Evil rode in Austin Powers. Right. <laughs> it was a real thing, though. He was having milkshakes there every day before Austin Powers. Um, <laughs> and uh, he would just meet with the cast. Uh, I have notes that when he, before he met uh, Rosalina for the first time, he said, uh, you could be er Ingmar Bergman's Ingrid, daughter. Ingrid Bergman's daughter. <laughs> She's like, I am. <laughs> yeah, I, I am that. Yeah. Um, so it just seems that... Uh, it just seems like he knew exactly what he wanted, and Dennis Hopper was coming right out of rehab, so you have this like very important time of what <laughs> what someone looks like in the worst part of their recovery of addiction. If I recall right, uh, shortly after Blue Velvet, or even during the production, I think he was dating Rosalind, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, so she had just uh, 
ended her marriage with Scorsese right before mm-hmm. this, basically. So he went. For, she went from Scorsese to Lynch, and she always said that he was the greatest love of her life, and still is in some way. Well, they're kind but, of. She was like a muse to him in yeah. some kind of voice. But I also heard that the way the relationship ended was very also <laughs> Lynch-like. Where Do he you know? Yeah, I yeah. heard a little bit of it uh, when I listened to. Um, podcast talk about the mm-hmm. history of her but like basically he just called her up long distance he's like yeah it's over and then yeah <laughs> so i guess what really drove it home for him what what she says is that he didn't like her smells in the kitchen that she cooked too much too often in his place and he didn't like when people cook he he says it interferes with art when people cook around you so. man lynch is such a fucking weirdo sometimes. he's a weirdo but i i mean i get it and he's right he's he lives as a artisan he's so into his art that I understand that if oh, you smell something... He's like something. art 24-7. You, you yeah. can't like turn it off or, you know, or be a normal person in any sense. He's <laughs> just an artist through and through, which is an admirable thing. But as especially when you when you kind of look at it from Rosalie perspective, you're like, wow, that's awful. Why would you want to live with that anyway? <laughs> I think the funniest thing is that Lynch broke up with Rosalini. That just cracks me up. Just, mm-hmm. the, just the whole premise of that. Right, well, that's the idea, is that <laughs> it, it was he who decided... He Rosalini not... wasn't, wasn't enough. Yeah. It wasn't working. Um, and I mean that was that was like his muse, and of course he's he's so married to his art that there's really not room for a person in there. Yeah, it certainly seems. I don't know what his um, you know partner situation is now. But I think he just lives in a little shack and paints, and he separates that from the house, so he doesn't have to have kitchen spells anymore. I kind of like to imagine that he just lives in his own headspace, like he just yeah. he just sucks into himself, and you know just occasionally travels back to Nirvana, and then comes out whenever he feels the need to make a film. I believe, like, his house is looking over, like, the Hollywood Hills of, like, the Mulholland setting, and he just, like, stays in there and and just paints amazing abstract portraits. Uh, He's pretty underrated as a painter, too, I thought. You know, there are a lot of great um, filmmakers who were. You know, Orson Welles, he Mm -hmm. did a lot of painting. He was a painter originally. That's where he started out in Ireland. Kurosawa, famously, he was a painter originally before he was a filmmaker. He did, uh, um, you know, he storyboarded all of Ron in oil paintings, which is uh, pretty uh, fantastic. (laughs) I mean, Ron, you could see that it it came from that impression. Usually very visually driven filmmakers, they tend to have some sense of, of... framing and you know portraits uh, you know they have a roots in that you can yeah. see that when they do you have that distinctive style even even the opening it's it's weirdly funny like the like the guy's falling down and then the sprinklers going off his dogs eating it like it looks like his dick's just shooting spouts of water <laughs> yeah. and then there's like the ear on the lawn and it's just chaos and madness in the opening mm-hmm. but it also idyllic it looks like you know the picket fence and the dog well that's a big thing especially it connects back to the memoir thing because the film is rooted in 50s aesthetics it's very clearly yeah. not taking place in the 50s because right. there's like more modern cars there's like some 70s cars you see them driving around it later but in the beginning of the film it's very intentionally 50s drawn like again with you said with like the perfect white picket fence and mm-hmm. suburban lifestyle and there are more 50s constructions and you know uh cars and everything's in, involved there it's intentionally set up to be not only the idyllic you know suburban town that's to be corrupted before long by the you know invasion of frank booth here but also you know to put you in the mind of the noir setting as well i feel they I love one element of Lynch that he's always obsessed with, like Americanized diners, and that that very commercialized idea of what the '50s looks like and how it's sold to us, yeah, and uh, packaged. And he repackages it in a lot of a a lot darker way, like a 
50s, of course, post-war, you're getting a lot of American optimism and ideas about American exceptionalism that are beginning. Uh, but then Lynch kind of turns that on its ear, so to speak, and you're looking on like... Its ear. <laughs> on its ear. And you're looking deeper into what um, what's actually going on, because post-World War II, it can't all be happy and pretty. No, I mean, because there was a certain amount of nihilism that was never recovered after yeah. the war, and that was still there despite an increase in optimism, like you said. Yeah, you have people that live for through World War One at this point and the second one. They face such universal tragedy that it's just a relief to the system. Well, and World War Two was, again, one of the things that really gave birth to, you know, film noir, like we talked yeah. about, you know, the cynicism of that. Yeah, so you could feel the 50s really birthing, like, his new movement and, like, in experimenting in Art House. Mm-hmm. But generally, I think just uh, his his connection to Americana and Hollywood in particular really uh, improves a lot of his work. And you see that especially we, uh, we started to get around to him, but uh, we really need to talk about Dennis Hopper in this film. Yeah, we w- we will get to Dennis in a minute. Um, okay, we'll keep going. <laughs> I, I, think, I think the thing with his connection to, like, the 50s Americana and the diners is that... Um, you have the Twin Peaks thing, right? Like the R.R. Diner's made famous in, in North Bend now, right? So right. In this one, it's a Arlene's Diner, and we get a lot of context for them following up the mystery, which leads them into Rosalini, right? They they believe she has something to do with this. Mm-hmm. Again, this all, this all set up early on. like, uh, And again, it almost feels like in some ways Blue Velvet is like two halves, two very mm-hmm. distinct halves, because you have the more idyllic and 50s set beginning with the mystery element like i talked about and then the second half it's like none of that matters once we get all the pieces in (laughs) place it's like there's not a mystery to be solved or anything to be reconciled it just just, plays out then yeah it's just unfettered chaos and corruption and uh, you know banality i think it made it so hard for me to reevaluate this because i don't think i have a pacing issue but it's clear that that he sold the movie on the first half, and then he went back and he says he rewrote the whole second. So Yeah, when you mentioned to me here that he had the first half down solid and pitched yeah. that, I'm like, yeah, that's very obvious to see, because <laughs> right. the second half, still very great, is less focused. Yeah, I mean, that was after he had like the pieces together, so the image of the film was already together, and the second half is like, how do I end this now? Yeah, and, and it does end in a, in a very satisfying it does eventually. way but like the way to get there is a little odd and like, like yeah, there's, there's the whole sequence where they go and they go to the other guy's house there and it's like what is this detour it feels a lot more lynchian in that it's like i can't pin the purpose of it yeah it, it's almost it's almost that like it doesn't have purpose it's like we talked about pacing issues and i was thinking of the twin peaks scene where there's just a for five minutes um a guy is sweeping the floor, and in a, in a show, you usually think that means credits, right? Right. Like, it seems like, oh, the credits are going to come down, the show's going to end, but it's like the middle of a scene. He's sweeping a floor for five minutes. Just five straight minutes. And then you find out a big plot point that I'm not going to say on the podcast, right, yeah, but no. but it's like, that's kind of Lynch, is that he doesn't care, he's willing to he's willing to do those tests with his audience to see what... Uh, what is it like the Bechdel test to see if like a, is that right? The Bechdel's the is that the, the feminist? Yeah, thing? that's the feminist one with the the two females who have conversation that's not related to men. Oh, no, no not that think, test. Yeah, I'm just going to delete this part. That's fine. There's a couple things in here we should probably delete, like my mention like the whole of, thing. Like, my trying to transition to Dennis Hopper before we're ready, but I want to say. Uh, in that same note of kind of like the sweeping thing as well, like like I said, with the part where we journey to the weird hotel room, or I'm trying to even remember what it is where they go to, but there is yeah. the, the beautiful in dream sequence 
you know, yeah. the the Roy Orbison song. It's a great scene and very, you know, simultaneously odd and quirky, but also very very dreamlike and beautiful. But it is like we said, it's one of those weird Lynchian scenes where it's like I don't know what I'm supposed to be feeling here, <laughs> other than like the the very surface level elements of the presentation. Like, is there something deeper going on? What's this relate to the story? Like, like ultimately. I, I don't know what the play is there other than because the whole parts leading up to it make it seem like a genuine horror film. And what's that actor's name again? He was pretty Dean uh, famous. Stockwell. Dean Stockwell, yeah. Yeah. So he was known basically for like his baby blue eyes and his like soft demeanor. So uh, every time there's makeup and blue velvet, especially, you know something's really fucked up uh, on the inside. So his really. A layered on makeup face you could see that there's something really yeah. messed up and that he's part of some kind of corruption i did notice as well i was just pointing out to me is that he you know there's a lot of profanity in the film yeah particularly from one character and dean stockwell's character is the only other one who gets to say fuck during the whole movie and it is at at the uh command of the other right. character so yeah there's a lot of other cursing um i mean i think we get like a fuck heineken but yeah, well, well, there was actually a whole funny bit from, from Dennis Hopper I remember reading as well, is that David Lynch was, was so concerned with the atmosphere on the set and didn't want to charge yeah. the sequences was, you know too much, so he would literally refuse to say the word. <laughs> yeah. He, like, 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 he would just say, all right, all right you know, uh, Dennis, go ahead and say that that word there afterwards. He'd be like, what what word are you talking about, David? He's <laughs> that like, word. that word. He, he points at the script to, to yeah. show him. He literally wouldn't say it. He said... David Lynch was a weirdo. <laughs> I think there's dreamy sequences. We have like at least three that stand out with the Robin speech, and then we have the uh, the pub uh, blue velvet song, and then we have that uh, that Roy Orbison song. Which yeah, all kind of connect. The song in the same usages way. in particular, both the recurrence of blue velvet and the in dream sequence, are very phenomenal sequences. Yeah. I love the the film opening with that, the original blue velvet song, and then Rosalini's version as well. Later, they're very wonderful and then it's really interesting how they take on new purpose later once we have more context of the, the reason for yeah. the song's conclusion and that's another thing i love about lynch is that was the whole impetus to make it is that he looked into the song and he found like mystery of like his 60s childhood and and he found like the mystery of that and he's like well that's a mystery story and that's america and it's twisted so he wanted to combine the song and create something new mm-hmm. and it definitely is i think uh I don't know, is this the point where we want to get to what everyone's expecting to yeah. say about Blue Velvet? Yeah, I guess we should. <laughs> so so I think one of the interesting things about uh, discussing Blue Velvet is, again, the, the juxtaposition of the kind of comfort of the Americana to the horrors of the, the real world here, because that first half does start out so... It, it starts out very normal. The film is very, like, almost family-friendly outside mm-hmm. of stuff like yeah. the ear in the beginning, and then it gets... Super dark, super fast, yeah. and super like like genuinely disturbing. I think this is one of the most. Uh, th- there's a sequence in here that's a, a truly, truly horrifying. Man, I, I had to finish it up last night, and I'm having like hit a lot of foot pain already. I'm like, man, this is not an enjoyable experience. Like, I was kind of on edge despite seeing it about twelve other times. Yeah, like I would not call the majority of Blue Velvet an enjoyable experience. Particularly, yeah. it's, it's noteworthy for its infamous rape sequence with uh, with Dennis Hopper's character there, Frank yeah. Lewis, where he comes in. And it's 
in we should talk about that for a minute i guess yeah i guess we should talk about um when lynch would have people perform those things he'd laugh hysterically in the background which always amused me and rosaline never found out why but she says uh, every time she sees it she laughs hysterically because she can't figure it out i think because there is an inherently like weirdly depraved you know element of it that that is maybe from an outside perspective like if you can take the the actual implication of the horror of it and the real sense of the the story going on and you can just see it for objectively like an actor on the floor screaming baby wants to fuck over right. and over again and and weird things and yeah that's that's weird and kind of inherently humorous but like viewing it in the film it's, it's genuinely disturbing and unnerving. it's not funny in the film <laughs> no not at all it's this it's this horrifying thing and it, I, and it feels like it's more real because you give Dennis Hopper's character here, some kind of weird, like, graspable fetish. Yeah, He's not just a right. power, you know, hungry person. He has some weird, actually sexually driven element to his terror. That's one thing I like is that Lynch gets to play out his fetishes in real time in, like, a realer way than, than like, Tarantino ever gets to. Like, he gets to really play them out and get into... Um, I guess uh, one of the things that stood out to me most in the book was when he was a child in Spokane and he was living on the street that uh, he the first time he saw a nude woman she was uh, like bloodied and beaten up and standing outside so eventually we see like Rosalini on the lawn and it's like the recreation of his first sexualized image so uh, a lot of this that is moment like, late in the film where she is yeah. you know fully nude and bruised and beaten and it's and they're like horrifying. is that your mom yeah <laughs> yeah and uh, it, it's terrifying and you you realize that's where Lynch's sexuality starts with that, with that woman, uh, that mystery of what happened to her, uh, the extremity of like that, that sex really confuses him. Mm-hmm. I, I can see how something like that would leave a lasting impression on someone as your first yeah, right. sexual image that you've been introduced to. In, yeah, because it's life. so violent and it's helpless. Well, and linking the two, it definitely it it kind of corrupts that image of you know uh, sexual glee, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if the whole movie is so fetishistic, but I think it kind of is. It, I think I think it's a psychosexual drama first. It's it definitely is. I think that's the main subject of the film, and that's what people talk about generally when they regard the film as the very sexually violent aspect of it. And it is. It is one of the most noteworthy things about it because it is so effective, and a lot of that is deserving of praise for Dennis Hopper's terrifyingly uh, amazing performance. Um, the other trouble I had with this is that, uh, I, I have a lot of appreciation for what comes after it, like getting Dern and McLaughlin together for this first time really pairs them in a way that makes it really special the next few times, uh, with the few seasons of Twin Peaks and the Firewalk with me. Um, well, and, uh, Dern as well with, uh, I think Wild at Heart was Lynch's next yeah. film and, she, and, you know, big role there. Rosalini in that too. Um, oh yeah, she is in that. Uh, I think that's around when they broke up after the Wild at Heart premiere, actually. I, mm-hmm. I think that's around the time. Um, but that's a little bit too much gossip stuff, really, <laughs> about Lynch. Uh, he, you can tell he's one of my favorite directors. I, I've, dig, I've digging pretty deep into this one. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm usually the one bringing all the filmmaker insider history of things into it. So we get to reverse roles here for a little bit, and I get to hear all of the interesting Lynch stories. It's nice. I like yeah. It. I mean, I have a few more, but... Uh, We'll save them for other Lynch podcasts. Yeah, right? there's so many more that I want to go into, but they all relate to other films. Um, 
I guess a lot of the context and foreshadowing for what would come in Twin Peaks is all here and built in. I think that's what I mean by it's a Northwest film is that it captures the identity of Spokane, which is Spokane feels like Midland America. It is basically yeah. once you cross the the mountains there, then it's a whole other place. You're basically it might as well be Idaho right. at that point. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very Idaho. different. Not even close to where we're sitting right now. No, I mean it's like a four hour, five hour drive just to get across to a Spokane. So. Yeah, and again, it's a, it's an entirely not only different landscape but different culture as well. Right, they're all Republicans. Yeah, <laughs> we can't stand for that here. Do I need to censor that word? <laughs> it is naughty. Like, remember, I needed to come up with a really bad word last night, so I just called someone a Republican. Yeah, that was, it's a, that it's was a, gritty. It's a good insult for today's culture. <laughs> right, we're gonna lose ten percent of our audience saying that, but don't be a Republican. <laughs> Uh, what else do we have on Blue Velvet? It's it's a beautiful film. It looks really nice. Well, I, I think we've talked a little bit about the ending, but we haven't really discussed it as much as we could. It does end in, a, I think, an interestingly like thematically bookending kind of way, but it yeah. is a little odd. I do remember reading somewhere, maybe you can confirm this for me more specifically, but I heard that David Lynch swears that the Robin that you see at the <laughs> end of the movie is real mm. when it's the most animatronic looking thing in the world i feel like there's a whole section in the book about the robin that it i i'm pretty sure it's a i'm pretty sure it's a fake robin or that it died or something or i don't know he's i remember reading somewhere that he said it it is a real robin and the reason it looks weird is because it's it's acting the bird <laughs> is acting which I'm, is which is exactly something david lynch would say i'm pretty sure it's a fake bird though it looks a hundred percent fake i i i've Man, there's something really important about the robin too, but I, I've lost it. Uh, Apart from like the whole, you know, the whole poem of the robin. Right. Well, and it, and it comes back because the the robin, you know, doesn't the robin like eat a bug at yeah. the end, which is yeah. the the roundabout bookending way because we start the film off by like descending into the dirt where all of the the grime of the bugs are. It's a it's a thematic idea of you know uh, the evil that lurks underneath, mm-hmm. effectively, and the robin is there as this kind of symbolic. Um, rescuing of that and, and destroying the evil, which um, you know McLaughlin's character effectively has when he shoots Dennis Hopper in the end. Right. Which, which again, that, that ending I feel like does come quickly. There's more mystery element in there where they discover like a drug deal or something going on, and he's dressed like like Dennis Hopper is dressed in a in a costume. Yeah. Some kind. Of, and, and at that point, that's around the point in the film where I check out of the story I more agree. so. Yeah. And I'm just there to see the, the kind of... Conclusion. The the, ele- the characters of the element there and the the thrill of the the very great sequences where, you know, like I said, they, they drive around and they torture McLaughlin's character and, you know, all the stuff with Rosalini and all that. But, like, for, as far as the actual mystery plot, it no longer matters at that point. Once you get to the actual discovery yeah. of that, like, the, the, the rescuing of... Rosalini's husband and her kid is really relevant because you don't really have any relationship to them as characters. They only it doesn't exist. matter really to the story. They exist as ideas. They exist as important things to to Rosalini's character, but not to us as the audience. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that the husband is killed is like, well, we didn't even know him. He was just yeah. It doesn't matter. What was his name even? Who knows? Oh no, doesn't matter that he's dead. Yeah. But uh, I I feel the same way actually. I don't really have a ton to add on to the ending except uh, what you said. 
Mm-hmm. I think that sums it up pretty well. I think I, it's half a perfect film. It it has thematic resonance. The ending does, but like narratively, it it tends to fall apart a bit by the end. And I I can't pinpoint why because it's there. There is yeah. conclusive elements to the story. It exists throughout the entirety of the runtime. It's but just <laughs> once once Dennis Hopper comes into the film, like the story is like it doesn't even matter anymore. It's so confusing because by second season of Twin Peaks, we also get to that point where. The whole second season doesn't really matter. Uh, it becomes soap opera. Uh, it becomes like a parody. Well, it becomes like a cutting satire of soap opera because Lynch is too good to make a soap opera. But. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's not. I don't know. I guess like like Lynch's is fallible as much as we want to praise him here because there's there's no filmmaker like him. He's very different. It's singular. Odd. Yeah, singular is a, a great word for it. And uh, there's still a couple more I have to see, but I. You know, I kind of wrestle with my own relationship with Lynch. I yeah. famously here in our group don't understand or appreciate Mulholland Drive. I'm cutting that. <laughs> um, that's the that's your biggest offense of all your movie tastes. That's the one that I I'm most upset about. And you know what? I admit, it, I accept, I agree with you that this, especially this, you love. Um, Sunset Boulevard, Sunset yes. Boulevard. Which is, which is also Lynch's favorite it's, film. I know, and obviously he made a huge love letter to that. Uh, God, we gotta do Mulholland Drive. I have, I've, I've gotta I have sit so down. much about I've it. Sit down. And that's the thing, is that it's not some of those things where I'm going to argue about it's bad or something. Is that I, I understand up front. I don't understand <laughs> Mulholland Drive. I just yeah. didn't get it. That's and, fair. And it's a long movie to not understand to you know the entire way through but you understand sunset boulevard so i think well, you sunset do. boulevard is a straight narrative i mean there's a very ethereal aspect and then some and then mulholland drive has a whole kind of reveal thing where it's like oh, a lot of what happened isn't actually happening oh you have to see it again i, think, I know before I know. you should I have say to, that yeah i shouldn't say too much about yeah. the film because i'm i'm saying up front i literally don't understand this movie and that's why i didn't enjoy it yeah i think even if you dislike it the second time we should run the podcast and see what happens just it's see, just so interesting that you would dislike it i don't want to go on the record trashing it because i, I do feel like <laughs> i genuinely do not understand and drive i just and didn't get it and i feel bad for not getting it a lot of us would say it's the best movie of the century so it's i think it's, especially that's what makes it so difficult which is surprising because it came out at the beginning of the century. That, I think that's, that's such a, Well, no, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's, sometimes that's just how timing works out, yeah. but just that nothing has lived up to that since is right. kind of incredible. Or just the idea that you could be so emblematic and, like, with the zeitgeist of whatever you're going to make and with the past of the film mm-hmm. and bring it into something completely new at that time. It's really remarkable. But uh, I don't know. Blue Velvet holds up really well. The restoration on Criterion's great. Uh, I think what, what really works about Blue Velvet in terms of, in a Lynchian sense, is that it's that middle road of narratively accessible to mm-hmm. most everyone but also weird boundary pushing lynchian stuff that kind of hooks you like i think blue velvet's the perfect introductory film to david lynch mm. because like you're not going like commercially like dune or like elephant man stuff but you're also not going all the way into the you know subversive and surreal with Maholden drive and uh Eraserhead. And I stuff. think you should really start with Twin Peaks and then maybe this second. It's really hard though. And well, those things that maybe you'll have that problem then, where then you're like, you know, oh, so Blue Velvet's just a lesser Twin Peaks. I know, that's that's what I came to though. It's because I've rewatched Twin Peaks so many times since I really paid attention to this movie mm-hmm. that it was kind of like, man, I, 
I really like Twin Peaks a lot more than this. I think what really solidifies it and makes it and keeps it from being derivative is again, like, we didn't talk about it as much as I would I'd like to, but Dennis Hopper really, really does make the movie. In so he many does. Ways. Yeah, we should just talk about him for a few minutes. Sure, we, we really haven't yet. Yeah, because it's it's a really terrifying, terrifying performance. We touched on it a little bit here, but it's, I think it's genuinely one of the greatest villainous performances in maybe any film. We talked about like uh, how much I love um, Leonardo's Calvin in the in the Django part of the Tarantino podcast, but yeah. the, this is kind of the same feeling for me. Like he goes in so hard. Oh, and. and he has we, like he has that rage I felt in early recovery. Yeah, like holy shit, this isn't going to work. Well, and it's a performance only someone as batshit insane as, yeah. as Dennis Hopper could give. Like, because he's so out there, <laughs> so like a hundred and ten percent into this performance, and it's a it's a character that's written to be the most depraved and fucked up person you can imagine, and Dennis Hopper just goddamn goes for it. Um, and after this, he went on and did Hoosiers. <laughs> <laughs> Right after this. He got an Oscar nomination for that. Yeah, uh, my, my old stepdad was in Hoosiers. That's kind of cool. Is uh, it? Oh, that's yeah. interesting. He throws a guy through a trophy case in there. I, I don't know if you know that scene, but... You know, it's been so long since I've seen Hoosiers, He's but... one, of the, one of the tall guys that plays basketball in it, you know? Don't all... Exactly. Basketball. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, I feel like we covered a lot of ground here. I feel pretty good about Blue Velvet. We'll get back to Lynch. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that this one doesn't top out to be more favorable for it. I, th- I think it's weird, like, you talk so much on here how much you, you feel you prefer Twin Peaks, but that doesn't take away from this. Because, no. again, I think any David Lynch film for you already starts out as excellent to incredible. <laughs> yeah, I think we're starting around seven with Lynch Lee. I don't have any fives or anything. I haven't seen Wild at Heart, which is a... Wild at Heart, that's, again, that's another weird one for me, where I like things about it, but, like, overall, it's a little too weird and unfocused for me. Like, un... I don't know. I I have not fully tapped into the Lynch aesthetic <laughs> yet to, like, truly, truly appreciate what's going on. And uh, Wild at Heart looks like the least... Uh, other than Straight Story, kind of, it looks like the... You know, it looks pretty typical of what an American movie would be, and less like a Lynch film to me. But I haven't seen it. It's there's there's a lot of weird stuff. Okay. There's a lot of weird stuff in it. Don't worry. There's there's weird Lynchian stuff. There's a whole kind of psychosomatic sex sequence with Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern. And it starts really violently. So I was like, I need to wait until my daughter's not around. Oh, you, so you started at one point. And yeah, she was in the other room. I was like, I better get this off before she's comes back in here because this is some dark shit. Oh yeah. You get fully nude Laura Dern in it, so if that's not enough to sell you on it. <laughs> I mean, that's that's all you need. Um, I feel pretty good about this, though. It, we'll come back to Lynch a bunch, I'm sure. I won't stop talking about it, no matter what we cover. So Yeah, you'll find some way to sneak him into the podcast. I'm sure you can fill out a runtime here with, like, five clips of him sh- shaming people for watching movies on an iPhone. Right. <laughs> and uh, I think we're... What are we doing next week, are we? Oh, we haven't decided yet. It's a it's a mystery for our guests, like a Lynch mystery. Like it's a mi- mystery for us until the day be- before we do these things. Uh, but we'll have Ad Astra takes and uh, what else? There's a there's a few movies coming out this week, so we'll get to those. You'll have to tell me about them when that comes, because yeah. as usual, I'm not going to pay attention. <laughs> right. Feels like it's a big movie weekend, but but all I can think of is Ad Astra and Rambo right now. So. Oh, that's right. Rambo's a thing too. Yeah. Uh, so we'll get to that and talk to you soon. Just a sprinkle stardust and a whisper Go to sleep, everything is all right I close